redefining narratives and shifting perspectives. This is Story Noir. Welcome to chapter 21 of the Story Noir podcast. My name is Opal and I'm your host. If you're new, welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you're returning, thank you so much. Regardless, I'm excited to present to you this conversation, which is part two to chapter 19's conversation. The first one being with Miss Dorothy Lazard, and then this one being a panel conversation both of which were part of the storytelling pavilion that I curated with the West Oakland Cultural Action Network. And so as a refresher, I was able to curate this booth by bringing together a bunch of people from the community, namely folks within the writing space. So I had Damarion from Forward Publishing. I had Omar Balas from Balas Books. And then I also had Sister Sci-Fi who were vending in the storytelling booth. And then I also facilitated two conversations. And again, this is part two of that. That is near and dear to my heart, history. Specifically history within my own backyard in Oakland, California. I talked to a panel of authors, creatives, community members, and change makers about their journeys, specifically to David Peters, who is the founder of the West Oakland Cultural Action Network and the Black Liberation Walking Tour, which takes place in West Oakland and all around the city. Definitely encourage you to check out the mission that they are on. And then I also talked to Dr. Mariama Smith-Gray, who is the Associate Professor of Educational Leadership at CSU East Bay. She's an Oakland native and a fourth generation Californian. And her current project, the Great Migration Study, examines the educational experiences of the children who attended Northern Californian schools during the Great Migration. And additionally, I spoke to Miss Rashida Chase, who is an Oakland native, vocalist, and community advocate currently studying at UC Berkeley's College of Environmental Design. And so we wanted to specifically speak about the Great Migration because everybody on the panel had some sort of experience within it, whether it was a pre- the previous conversation, like with Miss Dorothy, where she came to California during the Great Migration, or like myself and Dave, who had our grandparents or great-grandparents who came to California and then, in essence, made us second or third generation Californians, specifically Black Californians. And so I, again, got to kind of intersect my love for history, for storytelling, and for Black folks, for Black narratives uh, in this conversation. So I hope you'll enjoy be mindful that this is my first live podcasting session. And so if the technicalities are a little bit wonky, you know, please rock with your girl, you know, extend a little bit of grace. But again, I'm super proud of this conversation and I hope that you're able to learn something, provide some feedback and let me know what you think. All right. Enjoy. And so if you wanted to talk a little bit about what, how does the Great Migration relate to the work that you do today if you wanted to tell the people in about one to two sentences? Oh, should I start? Yeah, feel free. Okay, my name is Mari Gray, and I um, have a project called the Great Migration Study. I study the educational experiences of African Americans 
um, who were children and attended public schools or schools in Northern California during the Great Migration. Um, some of my participants are from Oakland and even more specifically from West Oakland. Okay. Yeah, the work that you do as it relates to the Great Migration. Uh, my work isn't directly tied to the Great Migration per se, but I grew up in West Oakland uh, in the Lower Bottoms, which is, for those who don't know, is kind of close to the BART station and the post office. Um, as Opal said, I'm currently in the College of Environmental Design and the Real Estate Development and Design Program, Master's Degree Program at UC Berkeley. And part of the reason why I uh, applied to the program was because I was seeing my neighborhood changed very rapidly, yeah. and it was not benefiting the people who were already there. Mm. And so the people who moved here during the Great Migration have left, a lot of them have left, or been pushed out uh, because of a, a lack of affordability in the area. And so I looked around and was like, who's helping with this? Mm -hmm. And didn't really see a lot of people. So. Um, I decided to go back to school, so that's what I'm doing. Thank you. Uh, my name is David Peters. I'm the founder of the West Oakland Cultural Action Network, and uh, we are the sponsors of today's event, of course. And then I found that that came out of founding the Black Liberation Walking Tour, yes. which was a direct response uh, to the things that she just started talking about changes I saw in the neighborhood. Because I am the grandchild and the child of uh, those, some of those great black, those migrants, you know, second wave of the so-called uh, great migration during World War II. And so it is, my work, it directly comes out of that. And so a lot of the conversation that we have today is Oakland is not what it used to be. I'm seeing so many changes, you know, a lot of nostalgia. And so we talk about the preservation of history. Miss um, Dorothy spoke about, you know, the ways that we preserve our records and the fact that we can't necessarily read them today because of the ways that they're um, written out. But that preservation of history is really, really important. We can see that through conversations like these, putting out information online, however we get it across. And so with those efforts of preservation, what are some of those um, that you have seen and think that will remain steadfast in making sure we stay with the information? Well, that's a terrific question. I really um, believe in preserving history, which is why I have the project that I do. So my project grew out of um, interviewing family. I'm a genealogy hobbyist, so I would interview my grandmother, I conducted about nine interviews with my grandmother. She's the child of a great migrant. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm a fourth generation Oaklander. I, my family has been in Oakland since um, the 1930s. So we've been here for a really long time. Um, and in California, even longer. Um, and so to preserve that history, I started off with interviews with the family members. So I've interviewed my aunts and uncles. They always tell you when you interview um, when you want to understand your family history, talk to your oldest living relative. So I did that before my grandmother transitioned. I also interviewed my father, who's a child of, um, also he's a child of great migrants, but from, a, from um, the East Coast. Um, my project specifically preserves the oral history in, um, of great migrants and their children. Um, I interview African Americans who, who 
grew up during the Great Migration, who I asked them um, three kinds of questions. So I asked them about their migration journey. So where'd they migrate from? What was that like? Um, why they migrated? I asked them about their educational experiences. Um, I'll back up a little bit. I also asked them where they migrated to and where the places they couldn't migrate to. So what was available to us and what was not available to us in terms of communities where we could live. I also interviewed them about their um, educational experiences. So they were children, I'm really curious. I, I teach in the Department of Educational Leadership at CSU East Bay. Um, a lot of my students are educational leaders who um, I think need to know what's happening in their community. Why does the community look like it does? And so often when I interview folks, I share these materials with them as well. Um, and I encourage them to get to know the communities, the histories, um, the changes in, over time. So the second part of my study asked children about their um, educational experiences. So what kind, what schools did they attend? What were those schools like? What were their experiences um, as a black child? Um, we know very little um, in the documented history um, of our area, our region. We know a lot about there's generalizations about California, you know, a lot about policy, you know, a lot more about Southern California, Black California. We don't know as much from the the um, experience, from the perspective of the children who lived it. It's not well documented. And so um, just hearing from children uh, what their experiences are is important in preserving that so that we can then make some, um, we can make some claims about and, uh, and describe what was going on. I'll talk about that a little later. And then the third part of my study looks at their racial experiences. So what was it like during whatever time that they were living in Oakland, in, this, in the case of this conversation, but in Northern California generally? And so that really kind of lets us, gets us some insight into the social cultural um, context in which they were attending school and living. And then the preservation pieces, I said earlier, it's not always in the written record, and so this becomes the record, right? So they give me the, the story, we interview. I do like you do, I, I record it. I also video record it if possible. Dave's in my study, his mom's in my study. Um, so their stories are preserved. Um, it's an archive, and so I give those to the families along with a transcript of the conversation so they can share that with their entire family. Um, so it's not just for my study, but it's for their family and then whatever artifacts they have that kind of help us to understand what their educational experiences could be. So one of the persons in my study gave me a lot of um, uh, articles from the newspaper because they were an athlete, and that's really interesting. So I'm, so um, even the, and I'll stop here, I just want, want to say, for example, I start to see this kind of gendered experience in education, a gendered experience in California, and in black Oakland, right? So what's happening to boys? What's happening to girls in schools? So I'm gonna pass it to Rashida. Um, and also just ask the vocalist, because I want to make sure everybody hears this. This is not a multi-directional mic, so if you talk directly into that phone, we can hear you better. Okay. I just want to make sure people can hear you. Um, but for me, uh, I have history in healthcare. And so when uh, I almost became a nurse practitioner and documentation, documentation, documentation. You have to document these things because we come from an oral tradition yeah. where we tell each other these things. What I'm also realizing is that 
young people are not talking to the elders in their families anymore. So there's a lot of disconnection that's happening and there's a lot of lack of knowledge in our young people. So having the conversations with the young people about your experiences and about, you know, with the older people in your, in your family about their experiences so that the young people hold those stories and we are the ones yes. who are responsible for continuing to tell those stories. My grandmother is 93 years old. She came here from Galveston, Texas in the 50s, in the early 50s. And so I've learned so much about her just from sitting at her feet and talking to her about her life and her experiences and her experience in Galveston when she went to Tuskegee in Alabama and then when she came to the Bay Area and hearing about how different it was then for black people, um, hearing about her experience where she felt like there was a transition from being a Negro to being a black person. Mm. Uh, when uh, James Brown's song, uh, Say About I'm Black and I'm Proud came out, she talks about that as being an extremely pivotal moment in her life as a black woman and the way that she felt about herself. And so getting to hear those stories directly from your relatives is super important, but also recording those. So every time I go to her house, during early in the pandemic, she was getting, you know, she was lonely because nobody was visiting, my kids and I, I decided I was gonna go over there one day a week and make her dinner. And so we would do that, and I would just turn the recorder on as soon as I walked in the door. And I would just record everything that she said because She's 93, she's not gonna be here forever, and I wanna make sure that I have these stories right. and that my kids have these stories. Right. So I also use a transcription service where I'm able to transcribe the things that I record. So there's a document yep. that is produced from that so that I have that and so that I can give that to my cousins and other relatives because they don't know. She's our oldest living relative at this point. So um, I also have been fortunate enough to be able to uh, produced a few radio shows where I interviewed people and uh, hurt my grandmother and a few other women from Oakland who are just doing great work. Um, some of them came here during uh, the Great Migration. Some of them are children and grandchildren of uh, people in the Great Migration. So documenting these stories, ensuring that the young people are talking to the elders in your family about their experiences so that they understand um, kind of the context from where those people are coming from yeah. because there's a lot of things that you start to understand about why your grandparents or your parents did things um, when you understand what was happening to them yeah. when they first came here. So documentation. I have a pointed question for you, Dave. Because I, okay, so with the Black Liberation Walking Tour, I want you to give a little bit of context to the people about what it is exactly, but why is walking like boots to the ground in a neighborhood so important um, in preserving that history? Why is actually walking outside and learning about your neighborhood, which is something you could do casually, but like intentionally doing it, how is that preserving the neighborhood and what are you doing to, to bring that forth? Um, that's, thanks for asking that question. Yes. Um, has anybody been on the tour? Ooh, I love it. Most people are getting on the tour. Um, <laughs> what is it? So let me, let me just set the stage for that. So we've got, uh, currently it's either a 10-stop, self-guided, audio-based smartphone app, a walking tour. One of the site stops of the tour is the YMCA directly across the street. 
I think there is a QR code on the fence there that if you hold your, your camera up to it, it will take them to that tour stop. Mm -hmm. And so currently we do uh, seven stops on the guided tour experience. Uh, and we start at 27th and West at the former site of St. Augustine's Episcopal Church, which was the site of the first Black Panther breakfast program. We wander around the neighborhood and we end up just down the block at 31st and Market in front of the Black Liberation Mural that we had commissioned as part of the tour. Uh, it's augmented reality. Uh, if you download an app called Black Terminus AR, you can have a reported experience with that. And there's, there's stops in between. Um, and so it's, it's because walking you know, comes out of that rural experience, mm -hmm. right? And so it was while I was walking one day around one of these blocks, looking at all the trash uh, and all the grimness, and I asked myself, why do I love this neighborhood so much, yes. given the way that it looks? Mm -hmm. It was because I knew about things that were unseen. Mm -hmm. You know, things that had happened in the past. Um, things I had heard about yes. at my grandparents' and grandparents' table. Yes. Um, things that I had experienced walking these streets. And so, you know, one of the other most important motivating factors for me was not interacting with people who walked past my house. Right? I, I sit on the front porch. Because that's such an important part of what black people are here in America, especially in Oakland, right? We do not, we see each other. So it's that affirmation of our presence in spaces that aren't always friendly and kind to us uh, that one of the things that sustains the culture. And then for a long time, this neighborhood was such a place. Mm -hmm. You know, you just walk down the street, be there, you see everybody, right? Everybody chit chat, it takes a while to get things going. Because uh, you can't just be like, hi, bye, unless you're really in a hurry. You know, talk to you. Uh, just a couple words. Um, and so it was the recognition that I saw a lot of people just walk past my house like I wasn't there. Um, and, and, you know, I think, you know, maybe have ear pods in or uh, whatever. But I thought to myself, you know, they just don't know. They just don't recognize the culture of the place that they're in. Yes. And so it became this, this tour was just a tool and a vehicle teach people about that Southern Black migrant rural culture. Uh, right. So many of those migrants came to, came to open for in so the 50s and 40s um, to meld with the Black population that had already been there. And I think that's why why is so important, because it's human scale. Um, and what kinds of people are curious about preserving the history of Oakland? Are you finding more of the elders that are being pushed out want to know more like, dang, you know, Oakland is changing so much? Or are you finding young people are asking questions about, you know, what was Oakland before I was born? Where does that balance kind of come in? And how do you kind of meet people where they're at? I'm curious for everybody on the panel. Yeah, well, let's look. Who's been on tour? Let's see what kind of people are curious about the stuff. Yeah. Is that there some more hands over here? See, there's all kinds of people that have been yeah. So it takes no, there's, I see all kinds of people coming to it. Young, old, all races, all genders, all, you know, it's just, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. And so I think it speaks to um, just our humanity, right? Because we all have an origin story. Curiosity. Yeah, curiosity. And I'm fascinated, like, how did you begin, how does your family end up in a place where they are now? Yeah, that's it. 
I love it. I love it. Did you? Any of y'all want to chime in on that? Yeah, great. I feel the same way. I, that's exactly the question I ask whenever I start talking about the Great Migration. Is if I do it, if I have the talk in a city, I always ask, how did they get here? Mm-hmm. Where did they come from? How did they get here? Why are they here? Um, and everybody can answer that question. So often, when because I'm an educator and I'm talking about um, educational experiences of Black people, um, often when we look at curriculum, it doesn't include us. People th- talk about immigration, and so Black people there are Black immigrants, right? But they're often not African Americans, and so. Um, to open up that conversation, if we talk about migration, everybody can participate, no matter who they are, because we've all got come from one place to the next place, right? Um, and I think that's a, I like that conversation starter, um, and in particular with the Great Migration, I'll just say this little piece because I, I love when y'all talk more than when I do. I learn things. Um, when I was looking at the data for the folks that I interviewed that um, grew up in Oakland or came to Oakland and migrated to Oakland. You know, you, you said this, I think, and I think your mom said it, and a number of other participants said it. Uh, that's what we call the people who are in a study. We call them participants. But black Oaklanders said um, that Oakland is or was the New Orleans of the West, mm-hmm. right? And so I, people often think, um, Southerners think of California as California. And I think of California as so Southern, right? So Southern and black growing up in Oakland. Um, I didn't grow up in East Oakland all of my life. I grew up in East Oakland most of my life. My dad had a house in West Oakland on West um, 8th and Chester. So I was kind of by, by Oakland. You know? <laughs> I don't know you got that thing, right? Um, so I got to see, and I did see, actually it's funny you mentioned the gentrification because I remember when Oakland began to gentrify. West Oakland began to gentrify. I watched it before my eyes when they started um, creating, uh, well, warehouses became um, artist studios and lofts. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, they're moving out here? They used to be afraid of us. Now they come and build a loft. Oh my God. Um, and this was like the 80s, right? So this is, I think, one of the times of gentrification. But going back to what I was going to say about the participants in my study, Oakland is so Southern to me because I was surrounded. I'm a child born in 1972. Um, so my grandmother is a child of a great migrant. My grandfather is a great migrant. I didn't even realize growing up that that was what was happening. My neighbors, my teachers, until I started my study and I was like, oh my gosh, I was surrounded by the South. Yeah. No wonder I eat this. No wonder <laughs> I act like this. No wonder I say this thing. And so there's such a connection between you know, the three major states that um, Oakland received from. So we received from Louisiana, all parts. Um, we received from Texas, and then we received from Arkansas. And then you get everybody else who comes, but not a lot of, uh, you know, and I know you'll go into the why, um, but it's just, why did you come here, right? And, and where did you come? And that conversation to me, in particular for Oakland, um, I'm going to leave it here because I'm going to let y'all talk about it a little bit more. That to me is really interesting of like why black people landed in Oakland and in particular what neighborhoods and places they could live and when they could live there. Because in my study I learned that there are different times when people can live in different places. Yeah. And so what happens in the 1930s and 40s, early 1940s before World War II is different from what happens after then 
is different from what happens in the 1970s. So Oakland is constantly shifting. I'm sure you have some insight on you know the structural changes and what you've seen. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s. I was born in 79. And I moved to West Oakland when I was six, I think. Um, so that's what I remember. I don't really remember living. Our, like We lived by the lake before that for like a year. And I vaguely remember that. I mostly remember just like riding my bike around the lake. But my most of my memories are from West Oakland. And I remember when I started seeing Argus Lops. Yeah. I remember when I started seeing like the grungy white kids who were like, you know, um, punk, the punk rock kids who would like move in the neighborhood because it was affordable. And then I started, like, we moved there when they thought what's happening now was gonna happen. Mm. So my mother bought the house there because she thought it was, the neighborhood was improving. And so, um, and then there was like a rapid decline because it was crack. <laughs> that was like, you know, 85, 86 was right when crack was hitting really bad. And so it was a rapid decline and then just became really dangerous, <laughs> you know? But I didn't feel unsafe. Yeah, that's the thing. I feel actually, and I said this to my friend the other day, I actually feel more unsafe now than I did when I was growing up and there were gunshots every night and police and helicopters and all of that stuff. Like, I feel safer, felt safer then than I do now. But if we're talking about context, um, there's a really amazing book called The Color of Law that I really yeah. recommend that all of you read because there's a lot of information about Oakland, Richmond, uh, Berkeley, and this area in general. And it talks about what happened when black people came here. It talks about how a lot of people came here for jobs. Um, they, you know, the 16th Street Station over in the Lower Bottoms was a huge, huge employer of black people. There were a lot of black porters. Um, and so a lot of people followed their family members. So like my grandmother was one of the first people to come out here. All her brothers, you know, she's the oldest of 10, oldest girl of 10, there's one more above her, but um, everybody followed her. And so uh, there's, and it was a similar story with my others, with my father's mother who came in the 60s and she was one of the first. There was, I think, two that came before her and then everybody started coming after that. So um, again, the places where you could live was totally different. Yeah. So just from a development perspective, um, there were racial covenants yeah. in the deeds of houses, and yeah. black people were not allowed yes. to live in certain parts of Oakland. Yes. And then there was redlining. So then it was like, if you want to buy a house, you really can't because they're, no, they're not going to lend to you. So the federal government had a huge part in creating right. segregated cities. And I think a lot of people don't know that, and that's something that I have to sit with as I'm in class with a bunch of young, really privileged white students who don't, or international students who don't know the history. Yeah. And they're like, why don't black people have their stuff together? How come they don't own anything? How come they was like, because it was intentional. And <laughs> yeah. you know, that always ends up being only like a five or 10 minute conversation in a two or three hour class, which is really upsetting. And so um, learning about the history of why black people were put in certain areas and why uh, things like zoning, which is where you have certain uses in certain spaces. So there are certain areas where there's industrial. So if you think about just Oakland, 
near the port, near where the army base used to be. All of that area was considered industrial. There's lots of trucks over there, which means there's air pollution. There's lots of pollution in the ground. So you have to be careful about gardening, mm. which is something that we did a lot in the South. Um, all along San Leandro Avenue in uh, East Oakland is all industrial. We were relegated to those areas. So also 580, you're not allowed to have semi trucks past, I think, Lakeshore. Because they didn't, they knew about the air pollution and mm. they didn't want it in their neighborhoods, so they rerouted all the traffic to 880. Mm. That's another thing I think a lot of people don't know. Mm. And so, knowing and understanding and reading the history about what's happened here and why we've been systematically pushed out, because they love to be around us. <laughs> they just don't want us in their spaces. <laughs> so it's like they want that grit and culture and flavor and all the other things they used to say, to talk about us. Um, but they want us to stay in our neighborhoods. So, um, yeah, I'll leave it there. No, thank you. <laughs> and so, wow, this could be a very, very long conversation, but I actually wanted to open it up to the audience to see if any, how this resonated with you, if you wanted to share maybe a short anecdote about the ways you've seen the neighborhood change. And so um, I want to pass the mic to anybody who feels called to, to give their testimony. Any takers, anybody want to? Um, I'd like to make a comment about that family. My family, hey. um, hello. Um, so should I, uh, my name is Ms. Franklin. Okay, uh, hello everyone. I was brought here uh, from my family with my grandparents of the group from Texas, and they knew that there were jobs out here that were in the West, they called the Golden, Wild Wild West, and the Golden State. And they came out here with their bags and their children in their backpacks. And my grandparents started going to church and praying, you know, that things would change from Texas to the about the South being had a different type of, uh, uh, what do you call it, impression about black people. They separated them from black uh, bathrooms, you know, white, uh, you know, separated from black, which I mean, you know, and so therefore the W's and the D's are here. So they didn't want to create an area of that type of situation or communication, so they, they brought their family to California where they had more of a uh, selection and a pride identification because California has a different type of uh, era when it comes to to people. You know, they separate their their uh, the conversation and their uh, presence of types of uh, identification of black people so they can hide. But black people came to California for a better for a better life, so they wouldn't be like identified. The bees are here and the whites are there. So um, they had more of a choice. When uh, Oakland was here in 1960, my uh, mother and they worked 16 hours a day. And they had to rent their, their houses that they did live in. Black people had to save their money. But they did have a place when they saved their money to buy a house. But the options were they had loans on. And if you didn't pay your your loan off for a certain period of time, they would take your property. Yeah. But black people owned half of Oakland mm -hmm. from California, from the 580 all the way down to, to the Campbell Goods on West Oakland where the post office was, owned by our great-great-grandparents. 
okay? And they pass on to their parents. And the whole thing is they work for half the money they give. Very messed dogs, sweeping and cleaning. They weren't allowed to be in a certain area of uh, of um, employment. Yeah. They get separated, but they were so uh, family oriented. You kept the knowledge and and the work uh, of uh, the family. You know, implanted within our children. You keep to that's only that's the only way you're gonna really have anything in life if you go by the wishes and don't trust that the situation. So they were obvious behind the situation that black people were separated from the set fact that everything that we had, we had to save it for ourselves. Okay? That's right. And we were, I was here when they had granny goods, um, yes. factories, counter soup, and they were on blood visors. Okay, all the railroad tracks and the elders, all the, uh, the trains, Southern Pacific trains used to bring all that, all that valuable merchandise mm -hmm. to Oakland. Okay. But there was a perpetration between a negotiation of how the certain uh, side of the party was going to come in, take all the jobs from the black people, because we weren't even allowed to work in panels. Okay. Yeah. And we owned half of the, you know, half of the franchise businesses that uh, established uh, the world and created all the types of jobs for black people. Okay, so therefore we separated ourselves, but we kept ourselves organizing churches. We kept our families informed about, you know, different arenas and areas and things that not to touch. And, you know, say, go put yourself in the trap and go talk to people that you really don't know of the other cult. See, that's how we separate. We, we know our bathrooms belong to us anyway because God made it like that. See, God came here from upon this earth. So there's no different separations. Here it is in California. We separate our continuity of of uh, understanding communication with our, with our families and not to cross that line, but the conversation goes between us. So we separate ourselves in another way, but we learn mechanisms that we are very important because without our, without our, uh, our uh, we call employment or working in these, in these garbages, the cage places, cage of, uh, of curcane sugar on factories and things like that, we wouldn't really exist. See. But if you present yourself, and on family, you know, and uh, with your family, and, and, and you uh, establish a relationship with your family. It's another situation, but we are black people are are more important, you know, in the face of communicating with their own. But they have been established in the world as being the most prominent people in the world. So that's all I really have to say. About Amen. Thank you. that uh, Dave and others have said about, I want to just say something about placemaking. Uh, it's really yes. important to not only share those stories that we have about our journeys here, our lives here to the young people, but I think it's really important to let them know as we communicate those stories, why it is important to even tell the story. Yes. Uh, and that may seem kind of meta. But um, this story is important. Our story is important because this is how we survive. 
this is how you got here, you know, whatever your particular family story is or your particular community story is, which is why I think it's important what Dave is doing uh, here in Hoover Foster because it could be, it's not an area that is well documented. We don't have a city newspaper. Mm. Uh, we don't have a really strong presence in here. And it's crazy that we don't have a city newspaper. Crazy. And uh, so a lot of stories, a lot of life is happening that we don't, that doesn't get recorded on some um, organizational or media level. And so it's really vitally important that we have people like Dave, that we have organizations like Oakland Heritage Alliance, who's trying to capture uh, different community stories in the, in the city. And it's all about placemaking. You know, I think it was important that you said, uh, what you said about just the simple act of waving hello to people. Yeah. Not so they'll know that you saw them, but make sure that they see you. And that, because that's a symbol that I belong here. Mm -hmm. I share this space with you, or rather, you share this space with me because I was first. your first. That's right. And so um, I, I feel like we can't take it for granted. You know, when I hear uh, these stories, you know, there's a lot. And also, just writing my book, there was a lot I didn't remember. Yeah. And the reason I wrote the book is you're forgetting more and more stuff the older you get. And um, you know, we already struggle, a lot of us, with uh, kind of multi-generational uh, tensions and distances, physical distances. So it becomes even more important to salvage our stories and um, to share our strengths with the young folk. That's Thank you. Story. I have something to say to that point, too. Yes to all of that. Also, it's important to preserve our history and play for placemaking because these people will come here and act like we never existed. Mm. They will act like we were never here if we do not tell these stories and have them documented. I'm watching now. It's so fascinating being in this program. <laughs> um, I'm learning so much in so many different aspects, but when they decide that they want a specific neighborhood to look a certain way, they will change the name of that neighborhood. So what you know as Hoover Foster, or whatever the colloquial name is that you know it as, it will be something different. So if there's nobody here who was here when it was called Hoover Foster, people will not know that it was ever called Hoover Foster. But yeah, it's very, very important to document these stories because they'll act like we didn't exist. And that is huge. And also to David's point about waving to people, it's so interesting, like I remember being a kid and you know, walking around the lake, your neck gets tired. Hey, what's up? Hey, you know, and I notice I walk by black people now and they look down. They'll stare you down until you actually look at them. And then they look down, I'm like, oh, you must be a new black. Because we didn't used to do that. Um, everybody spoke to everybody. So that's, but talking about our neighborhoods and, and 
ensuring that these things are documented is extremely important. It's also just a sense of pride, a sense of yourself and the place that you grew up in um, is very underrated by people who don't really care about where the neighborhood they come from because you know, we oh. we are very communal people. And so you think about how young people create these groups, which sometimes turn into gangs and other things, and they claim it in certain blocks and all of that. That is a different kind of pride mm -hmm. in where they come from and what makes them who they are. So mm -hmm. we need to make sure that we are documenting these things and that young people for generations know what's been happening here. And so that they can, can continue the legacy. Okay, I know Dave wants to hop in. I'm gonna hop in real quick. Can you hear me? A little closer, directly in. Can you hear me now? A little, okay. little more up. I'm here. Okay, okay. When you spoke about documenting, I got goosebumps. Um, because I, I agree with you about the way that people mean things. One strategy that I have for documenting for perpetuity is to get things into the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So if the way that we can get our communities to know these things, for example, I grew up in a neighborhood in Oakland. I didn't know it had a name. Mm -hmm. um, I just knew the street I lived on, and my mom told me the name later. Um, and then I would forever could say, well, I'm from this place and that place, right? Um, one of the things that I'm working on is creating curriculum related to the Great Migration. So that, if you look at the fourth grade social studies standards, anybody here in education? The fourth grade social studies standards are where we would want to put a conversation about the Great Migration. It doesn't exist there yet. It, it talks about migration, it runs right past it. It talks about everybody else's migration, and very little about the tr dramatic change that African Americans made to the state. This is not the state it was before. And because of our presence, we think about the musical, cultural, artistic, um, food ways, contributions of black Californians. It is tremendous. We've shaped every single industry. And yet, we haven't really taken um, credit for that. Or it's not being taught as something that we've done to shape the world in our state, in our region, and I think it needs to be. And the only way that, th that that happens consistently is if it's taught in the curriculum. And so, for example, in the fourth grade curriculum, when you talk about uh, migrations, you can add in the great migration. What are the patterns? What, what is, where do the people come from, et cetera? And you need to do that at a local level. So not just generalized California, but very specific to your community, because it's going to be different. So I live in Elk Grove now. We drove two hours to come and be with y'all because we thought it was so important and because this is my hometown. That community is different. That black community is different from where I grew up in East Oakland and where my father lived in West Oakland. And so even making sure that it's contextualized and localized um, and you as parents and you as community members can, can demand that, can go to your school board and say, show me where black people are in the fourth grade curriculum, social studies standards. Uh, thanks, Dr. Ray. I want to piggyback right on that. The um, state of California allocated significant funding to all districts throughout the state 
but particularly to the Oakland Unified School District to implement what's called community schools program. And so every school has a resource officer who has a budget and they are supposed to bring community stories uh, into the curriculum of the schools. And so that's something that you know, we should be advocating for and that the schools in our neighborhoods interact and reflect the desires and wishes to the extent possible of the communities in which they exist. Um, and so I will say this for OUSD, they engaged with me in the Black Liberation Walking Tour to assist uh, ethnic studies teachers to bring the content we've developed into the local schools in West Oakland. And so we've said that, and we've contracted, and we've met once, but now it's really how do we hold them accountable and to make sure that it's implemented. And so that's part of um, the relationship uh, that WOCAN is, is establishing, particularly with Hoover School that's right here in this next block, which is a very historic school. Uh, it's the school that my mom went to. Uh, it was an aspirational junior high school for black folk when this was still North Oakland. Uh, when my family was the fourth black family on this next block here, when it still was a neighborhood where they didn't really want to sell black folks property. Mm. So I wanted to, you know, Oakland being the, the, the deep south, and I want to piggyback on um, black and proud and color of law. So color of law subtitle is a forgotten history around redlining. And so I grew up at my grandparents' table and my parents, you know, my mom, my grandparents, my mom on this next block, hearing all about redlining. You're right, seeing uh, acorns being oh. dis dissolved and seeing 50 yeah. square blocks of raw ground and how traumatizing that was for me as a four, five, six-year-old because I didn't see that in other people's neighborhoods. And so that vulnerability that I both experienced seeing that mm -hmm. and heard at the table around the inability of black folks to be able to preserve their homes and fight off of the Oakland Redevelopment Agency and the federal government to destroy that property. And to hear about redlining, how that impaired uh, my grandparents' ability to, to finance this house, it was like, everybody knows this stuff. Yes, we do. Right, but then I started talking to people who were reading Color of Law and it was new news. And so I had walked around my whole life thinking everybody knows about redlining, but you know, that's, that's not the case. Um, I was five years old when James Brown Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, came on the radio. And I can remember the day, sitting in my granddaddy's truck, the first time I heard that, and I was like, you can say that on the radio? Yeah. And so at five years old, to come up in a culture where folks are saying, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, black is beautiful. What's up, brother? Right on, Afros, dashikis, in this extremely positive cultural environment when I was five. And so to be nurtured on that, Yes. In this militant black, this, this black militancy, you know, six, seven, eight, nine years old, really is who I am today. Yeah. And so I'm extremely grateful for those folk who are a generation older, who were singing those songs, who were teaching that political right. rhetoric, yes. who were yes. using this extremely affirmative language about blackness, which gave me positivity around being black that I think prior generations didn't have, nor subsequent generations. And so I think this was happening around the country in all places, whether it's Pine Bluff, Arkansas, or you know, other places like that, there was, this, there was this flowering of black culture, black power, and black national, black cultural nationalism, I think was very important. 
Oakland was, you know, I like to tell people until 1980, at least, Oakland was the farthest west outpost of the Deep South. Yeah. Because I grew up in the Deep South on the next block. Because yeah. mm-hmm. yeah. all these, you know, like, you know going Everybody's to my grandparents' house, yeah. you know, my first few years, and their older friends, and then going yeah, down neighbors. home every summer. And so my, my grandmother's from Louisiana, my grandfather was from Texas. They met and married in Houston uh, during, the, during the Depression. And my grandfather's brother-in-law came to him shortly after in 1943 and said, hey, I hear there's work for black folk in Portland. So they jumped in the Model T, bound for Portland, ran out of gas in Oakland, and my family been here ever since. <laughs> Right? And so my grandmother was one of this army of blue smocked women that would catch the buses that like right here on the ADA, these other bus lines, and ride the bus up into Claremont to be domestics for white folks. Mm-hmm. And so we don't often think about the domestics industry uh, of black women here in Oakland. We tend to, I think we tend to sign that to the Deep South. Mm-hmm. But you know, we had that here. And it was a whole bunch of folk that were doing that, right? We had the porters, you know, the men had the opportunity to be porters and have this terrible, poorly paid, overworked job, but the opportunity to travel, you know, and to become really these, these foreign explorers. And so, you know, particularly, you know, this culture of these black Catholics from Louisiana, there used to be a church right here on the end of the block where St. Mary's Center was that had a whole bunch of Louisiana Catholics that they, I think these are a couple parts, important parts of their culture. They wanted to own land and buy land as soon as they could, and they had guns to protect their land because they had to protect their land down home. And so this idea of I'm gonna I'm willing to stand up with my life for my property, I think is an important part of Oakland's culture, and that it you know helped to create. I think uh, Miss Franklin talked about you know black ownership here in Oakland. You know, in 1980, Oakland was 50 percent black. In 1990, we got our highest numbers and have just. And you know the numbers have been going down. I can remember looking at the 1990 census data and seeing one. It's smaller than the census tract, a census block. I think in Oak Center, that's whose income was way bigger than everywhere else in West Oakland. And then driving down there to look and seeing white folks, I'm like, here they come. And so you know we've been this was we've been seeing this coming. Um, for a long time. So I lost my grandmother when ooh, 40, almost 40 years ago. I was 21. I lost my grandfather 25 years ago. And so I'm much, my brothers are 9 and 13 years younger for me, younger than me. And so these stories that I carry of them in me, um, sharing with them about them going down home and that extended family is the way that these stories get transmitted right. within my family. And I had, you know, took some, I had a seventh grade project. I had to record my grandmother or something. I wish I had that tape. Um, but she talked about, you know, growing up um, in Louisiana. And I was trying to talk to her about, about voodoo. And she, she wouldn't talk to me about that. <laughs> she, she did talk about, um, you know, growing up, you know, what it was like growing up on a, in a rural and a farm there with a, with a father who didn't speak any English. And I had had the reference um, of having gone down there. So every, all this work that I do is for them. Um, and the memory of all those other migrants like them that came to Oakland and transformed, you know, the 8,000 black people here in Oakland were overwhelmed, you know, by the 160,000 that came over the next four decades, really trans 
transforming the culture here into you know an outpost of Dallas. Beautiful. Well, thank you. This has been a really amazing conversation. I honestly feel like this could have been the entire you know event, and so there's more to be had. Obviously, a lot of people from the audience have top of mind thoughts, and so I think as we wrap up, the biggest takeaway is to keep talking to people, record those yes. conversations. Yes. It could be as simple as just having it on your phone and putting it on the table and having a conversation with an elder yes. and you know waving, saying hello. And so that power of dialogue, I honestly think, is going to be the thing that preserves our Oakland history. We are griots. And so with that being said, oh, let's see. I want to have, we have one more audience participant question. And I don't think I can hear what you can hear me. Um, in reflecting on what's been shared today, I think it's also equally important not just to share our stories of the but to think about how we can impact the future. Mm, absolutely. And part of that is making sure we maintain our voting block. Yep. Because that is the way we preserve our power politically. Um, I don't want to come back to Oakland or, or, or leave Oakland and, and look back and say what was. Mm -hmm. I think we need to maintain what is, continue mm -hmm. to grow, continue to educate our kids, but maintain our power through our political voice. And I think that's how we'll stay here and stay relevant. Absolutely. Did anyone have any more reflections? That really did go from the heart. Well, thank you all so, so much. And so um, to set the space, you are here in the Storytelling Pavilion. We do have books that are on sale for some amazing local authors and book distributors. So definitely check them out. Get in conversation with the folks that we have. We also have a few wellness activations happening behind um, the divider right here and then of course all the activities that are taking place outside on Brockhurst and so did you have a question go ahead I just came in yeah uh, I just came in and listening to you sure sure and uh, I also want to be caught up in what we're talking about yeah absolutely so um, kind yeah of course um, so kind of the theme of today overall is land is liberation I'm talking about the great migration really thinking about the ways that West Oakland specifically has you know, impacted our personal lives. And so we got um, dialogue from folks who um, have come to Oakland by way of the Great Migration with Miss Dor Dorothy. I encourage you to talk with her to kind of hear a little bit more about her story and her book. And then everybody here on the panel respectively has um, a some sort of relationship to that of Oakland. So really the, the theme is that of Oakland, but the ways that it sits for us as individuals. And so, um, yeah, I encourage you to, to talk with people within the space. We're all kind of on the same wavelength in that sense. And so, um, yeah, you're in the room with some very brilliant minds. You're in the right place. I'm glad, we're happy to have you here. Beautiful. Well, here you are, you're in the right place. There you go. There you are. Well, we're happy to. So I'm very interested in the East African migration to Oakland. Uh, particularly, my experience is that particularly during the Ethiopian Eritrean War, I began to see a lot of migration from there. I would love to talk to you afterwards because I don't have any of these stories in our in our bank. There you yeah. go. See? And that's kind of the space that we have of like make friends, talk to people yeah. because there are some really brilliant minds. Please do. And so I yes, and so with that being said, this is the conclusion.
conclusion of the panel programming, we do have um, one more programming that's gonna be happening called Sad Boy Fanatics. Um, we have our friend Clancy who is tabling outside. That is more of an ace. I'm not going to be the one facilitating that. However, I do encourage you to stay in the space. Again, patronize everybody's booth. Um, we have one more bookseller outside, Books by Ballas. He is a children's um, publisher, so go tap in with him, sell out some of his books, but overall, the space is going to be open, and I encourage you for dialogue, but thank you. And keep in touch.